Today, we get to learn uh, a little bit more about sandwiches and a little bit more about lunch and a whole lot more about Jesus and His power. And we're going to do that through seeing what is now the fourth miracle that takes place here in this Gospel of John that we have been walking through. It is a story, a true story, uh, that shows up in all, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's called the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to see Jesus do something incredible, miraculous. He's going to feed over 5,000 people their dinner. It's going to show us um, a lot, I think, about what it means for us to follow Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, what it means to trust Him. And we're going to see Jesus' literal original 12 disciples as they slowly but surely begin to learn that same lesson of what it means to, to follow by trusting and believing in Him. So my kids this morning, quick question for all my kids, how powerful is God? This much. How powerful is God? Really powerful, right? How much does God know? Everything. How much can God do? Everything. Anything. And how much does God love you? Everything. This much. All the way, right? Completely. In infinity. That is absolutely true. If you have your um, Bible this morning... Will you go to the book of John and let's open to John chapter 6 to check out this story this morning. I'm going to open us in a word of prayer and then we're going to read beginning in John chapter 6 starting uh, at the beginning in verse 1. So as you're opening to John, let's take a word or take a moment and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are grace, that you are love, that you have all power. And Lord, we open our, our eyes to read and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive from you this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word, that it is true and powerful. It is beyond our ability to comprehend uh, the love that you have for us and the power that you have and that you would send your one and only son, Jesus, to earth to save us. So Lord, change our lives this morning as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Six ways this morning from John chapter 6 that I believe Jesus would have for us to understand how we ought to appropriate the power of Jesus in our lives. Let's begin uh, in verse 1. We're going to read first verses 1 through 6. The story begins this way. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, one of the disciples, "'Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat?' He said this to test him, for he himself, that is, Jesus, knew what he would do. First application or observation, number one is this, respond to people and problems like Jesus. Respond to people and to problems, very often created by people, like Jesus. Jesus saw them from a distance and had compassion on them. 
Mark chapter 6 tells us this exact same story. And in verse 34 of the same miracle, it says, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had gone to the Gentiles. He is on the other side. He is already reaching out to people who others did not care about and others did not love, but Jesus is going there with compassion. And at this point in Jesus' life here on earth and in his ministry, Jesus is incredibly popular. And so it was very common now for massive thousands of person crowds to begin to follow him around. And they followed him specifically, we are told, because of his miracles or signs that he is specifically healing people. And we've already looked at several of those stories. And so they don't necessarily yet believe in Jesus. They don't necessarily understand or believe that he is God, that he is the Savior of the world. They haven't come to that realization yet, and many of them never will. But what does Jesus do? Jesus puts the crowd first, and he puts himself and his own needs second. We see that right off the bat. See, Jesus and his disciples went up on a mountain, the Bible literally says, to sit down. They're tired, right? They want to take a break. They are tired. They themselves are hungry, specifically because they have been doing ministry to people who are spiritually and physically needy. You ever been around anybody who's needy? High maintenance, right, is the term. Jesus has 5,000 plus of them who are coming to him and they want. They're not coming to bring him dinner. They're coming to ask for it in every sense of the word. But Jesus puts his own needs, his tiredness and his hunger aside, instructs his disciples to do the same and takes up feeding and caring for and spending time with those people. And so it begs the question for us right off the bat, where is their compassion Where is Jesus calling us to have compassion and to get uncomfortable in caring for people? Are you ready to rearrange your schedule, I think this passage asks. Are you ready to rearrange your schedule to provide time, to listen to people who have needs, to talk, to pray with them? Are you willing to rearrange your finances to care for and to provide for people? Are you eager to stop what you are doing when you are in a rush to listen to someone, to share with someone, to pray with someone, to share the good news of the gospel with someone and lovingly speak into their lives. It will look just like it looked for Jesus. But Jesus is just beginning to teach us what it means to follow him. So number two, look at now how the disciples come into this. Number two, answer Jesus' call to get involved. Watch what Jesus does here. Jesus asked the disciples what to do about the problem of no food for the people. At the very beginning, the first thing he does is speak to Philip, representing all the disciples, and say, what are you going to do about this situation? So Jesus sees the problem, and he invites the disciples immediately to get involved. And we're told one of the reasons that Jesus is doing that is to test them. This is not a pass-fail, though. Jesus is not looking to grade them. Certainly, if they are going to be graded, as the story continues, we will see that the disciples fail miserably. The goal is not to fail them. The goal is to educate them. Jesus knew that they would fail. Jesus knows that they, on their own, can certainly not feed 5,000 people. But what Jesus' goal is here is to connect sight to faith. Right, and the scripture talks about, I live by faith and not by sight. 
we're going to see the disciples are doing the opposite, and Jesus wants to begin to change their hearts and their lives because Jesus calls us as his followers to be an active part of his kingdom coming here on earth and an active part of his gospel mission here in our city and around the world. So he's going to call them to something that they clearly cannot do on their own so that they can learn a better way to rely not on themselves, but to rely on Jesus. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Did you catch that little sentence? Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Jesus could have just instantly, in that moment, he could have called down manna from heaven. God the Father had done that in the Old Testament. 2020, Jesus could have just said, Chick-fil-A, be there. And there would have been Chick-fil-A, and it would have been one of those super fast drive throughs three lanes wide, get all 5,000 people through immediately. But he didn't want to do it that way. He already knew what he was going to do, but he was calling his people to be a part of it and to get involved. Instead, he began to work through his followers to teach them how to trust and how to appropriate his power. See, Jesus doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help, but he wants our involvement. And both of those things are wonderfully true. I'm so thankful he doesn't need me, and I'm even more thankful that he wants me to be a part of what he is doing in the world because Jesus can do more with what you have than what you can do with it. And do we honestly believe that, that Jesus can take what I have and do more with it when my hands are open than when I try and do it and handle it myself? It reminds us also that the vocabulary of God, we can't do this, is not acceptable in the Christian life. And so Jesus is saying, lovingly saying, will you get involved? Will you be active, invested, and committed to the work that I am doing here on earth as it is in heaven, says the Lord's Prayer. Will you answer Jesus' call into his ministry here on earth? Let's continue in the passage, though. How did the disciples respond? Verses 7 through 9 now of John 6. Philip answered him, answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, said to Jesus, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Number three, stop approaching life based on your ability. I love you. Stop approaching life based on your ability. Look at Philip. Philip shows us what I'm going to call calculator Christianity. Write that down. That's going to be famous someday. Calculator Christianity. Living the Christian life, not by faith in Jesus' power, but by sight on what I can do myself. This is calculator Christianity. See, long before we as American Christians were doing it, Jewish Christians are doing it here at the very beginning, which also encourages me. Philip was a bean counter. And Philip, every time that we see him, in fact, in the New Testament, he has this tendency to assess who Jesus is and the situation going on in his life based purely by what he can see immediately physically in front of him. He is weak in faith. He looked to his own ability and his own resources, and he decided that there was nothing, therefore, that he could do. 
You know, what if other followers in the Old and in the New Testament approached it the same way that he does with their calculator, their spiritual calculator in hand? Think of some of the most amazing stories that we have in Scripture. What if David, when approaching Goliath, looked at Goliath and said, about 10 feet tall, quadruple my weight, I don't think we can do this, God. I'm going I'm to jet. What if the, the story of Moses and crossing the Red Sea, what if instead of approaching it by faith in God and asking for God's power, what if Moses counted the number of Egyptians who were coming and then measured the, the depth and the breadth of the Red Sea and said, God, this is, this is not going to work out, so I'm, I'm quitting. What if Gideon and 300,000 Midianites, what if Gideon just sat there and counted his few soldiers and sat there and counted the 300,000 Midianites and said, God, I'm walking away because I can't do this. How much more Jesus in, in the sins of the entire world? Do you approach problems by what you can see and measure and control and fix? Or do you, do we pray big prayers drenched in the humility that in fact I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, says Ephesians 4.13. We can ask for God's miraculous, life-changing power in our lives, in our city, and in our world. So we get Philip, but now let's look at Andrew. And Andrew kind of gives us another shade of this. Andrew gives us what I'm going to call quitter Christianity. We've seen calculator, now we get quitter Christianity. And that is living like you have lost at life because Jesus hasn't answered your prayer when and how you want him to. And so you quit. Do you see how pessimistic Andrew is right off the bat? He could have said this, hey kid, come here, let me have your fish and your loaves. Let's take them to Jesus and let's watch what only Jesus can do. It's going to be amazing. Instead, he does the exact opposite. This isn't enough and this will never work, so I quit. It's quitter Christianity. He doesn't see that there are bread and that there are fish, like truly see that there is possibility. But what he really doesn't see is that Jesus, the Son of God, is standing right next to him. He doesn't see it because they're either calculating or they are quitting and they miss who Jesus is in the picture. And that's a reality for us because there are two ways to miss Jesus. You can hope in yourself or you can live hopeless. Either way, you miss Jesus. We're not the Savior. I'm not the Savior. Thank God I'm not the Savior. But we have a Savior and He is all-sufficient. We act, guys, according to our view of God. How I view God is, results in the words that I say and the actions that I take. And so if you approach the challenges of life by first seeing what you have and what you can do, then you miss entirely what it means to follow Jesus. So I'm talking about if, if praying and talking to God and asking for help, if opening his word to study and, and understand, if worshiping together, if being together with other believers in biblical community, if serving within the church or reaching out and sharing the good news of the gospel, if it is stale and bland and uninteresting to you, I want to ask you this week to talk with Jesus and ask yourself, whose power am I living by? 
Because when you're living by your power, the things of God become unimportant. And when you are living under his power, under his authority, watching what only God can do, and he does it in and through you, you cannot help but be amazed the way that this crowd and the way that these disciples in a few moments are going to be. But there's one more really important little character here that we get, right? Number four, start approaching life based on Jesus' power. So what can we learn from this unnamed little boy who seems and frankly is insignificant? What do we take away from him? Again, the numbers, calculators in hand, do not add up. Five loaves, two fish, we need to feed 5,000. It doesn't work. And what's interesting, John gives us a very important detail that we should not ignore. He says that it is barley bread. John wants us to understand something. Barley was the bread of the poorest of the poor. This boy is as insignificant and powerless on his own as he could possibly be. But this boy does something incredibly powerful that sets him apart. Right? The boy gave his lunch to Jesus. He opens up his hands and says, take what I have. The commentary I've been reading from uh, Dr. Boyce on this says that I love this statement. It says, the point of the story is that the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant became sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. Little is much when we hand it over to God. Little is much when God is in it. Lord, everything that I have is yours. See, because God's not looking for your ability. He's looking for your availability. It's a massive, massive difference. He's not looking for you to show off your so-called power. He is asking you to trust him and appropriate the power of the son of the living God. Right, so your nothing, my nothing, plus God is everything. That's the calculation that we need. So the boy's hands and his resources were open to Jesus. He provides no solutions. He makes no suggestions. He gives all that he has to Jesus. And he appropriates the power and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the single most powerful, effective, and direct way that we can do that? Prayer. I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything when I pray. Right. Because you're talking to God and you're asking him to move. Not that you step out of it, but you're saying, Lord, do in me what I cannot do myself and let me be a part of what you are doing in this world. Multiply miraculously by your power. I want to tell you the story of George Mueller. Maybe you know about him, maybe you don't. But George Mueller lived in the 1800s in Bristol, England. He was born to an unbelieving father, and his mother passed away at the age of 14. He describes himself as one who, as a teenager, mocked Christians, and he was a liar and a thief, so he says of himself. Uh, he briefly went to prison, in fact, as a, as a late teenager, as he just, his life sort of spiraled. But he went to a Bible study upon the invitation of a believer at age 20, and that night, in that very first evening of Bible study, he gave his life to Jesus. He went on to be a pastor of a church for 70 years. And of the many things that he focused on, 
his, uh, his biography says that he focused on Bible education for children and adults, international missions, and thirdly, quote, to feed, clothe, and scripturally educate the destitute children who have lost both parents in death. Well, why do you think that was a part of his vision? Because that was his story. He knew that he couldn't fix it, but he wanted the power of God. George Mueller, above all else, is remembered as a man of prayer and a man of faith. He cared for over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. John Piper writes about this man. It says, this discovery of the all-encompassing sovereignty of God became the foundation of Mueller's confidence in God to answer his prayers. And so maybe you've heard this specific story in the life of George Mueller and many of his children he was caring for. There was a literal genuine day in the life of his ministry where they had about 300 children, orphans, in the orphanage. And as was typical, they had run out of money and they had run out of food. And that morning there was no food. And so the lady who was running the orphanage came to him and said, we have nothing to give these children. And George did what he always did. He prayed. And the first thing that he did was he thanked God for the food. They had no food. But in front of these children, he prayed and he thanked God. That's instructive, isn't it? Thank God before anything came. Literally, within minutes, the baker from down the street came and knocked on the door and said, I was awakened in the middle of the night and I just felt like I needed to bake bread for your kids. Here are the loaves. Within a few minutes, and this is even more amazing, this is an absolutely true story. Within a few minutes, the milkman on his cart comes rolling by the orphanage, and by God's grace, it broke down. He could not go any further. They get a knock on the door, and the milkman says, I've got 10 large cans of milk out here that is absolutely going to spoil out here in the street. Can you use it? Yes, we can use it. That was his life. That was his day-to-day because he prayed, because he looked to the Lord's power and certainly understood that he could do nothing. He prayed and asked, as we ought to be asking, as Ephesians 3 says, to ask for immeasurably more than all we could ever ourselves even ask or imagine. Now take it back to Jesus. Look at the scripture. This is verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Number five, believe. Believe that Jesus is the solution to every problem. Amen? Every problem. I love what Jesus says here. Just have the people sit down. You sort of get the tone here. Jesus is not being prideful. He's not arrogant. He's not sinning. But this is the ultimate mic drop moment. Just sit down. Let me show you real quick. And what does Jesus do? He begins by thanking God the Father. There is no food. There's just the couple pieces of bread, the couple pieces of fish. 
but he begins by thanking God. And as he prays and thanks God, the loaves and the fish miraculously begin to multiply in Jesus' hands. Do you give thanks before you see results? This is a very practical story for us. Lord, I thank you in the midst of what I am lacking that you will always provide. In the middle of my struggle, I thank you for that struggle because I trust that you will carry me through. In the midst of whatever I am failing, if I am on the mountain peak or if I am in the valley, I thank you and I trust you that in your good way and in your good timing that you have this under complete control for my good and for your glory. Jesus gave them abundance out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the Latin term. It's the term that we use when we talk about creation. That Jesus himself, when he created the world, the universe, and everything that he created out of nothing. Jesus creates out of nothing. Jesus provides out of nothing. Baskets and baskets left over. Let me just encourage you this morning. Jesus can do what you cannot. Jesus can save who you cannot save. Jesus can solve what you cannot solve. Jesus can heal the sadness that you cannot heal. Jesus can resolve the guilt where you cannot. Jesus can bring truth where you cannot. Jesus can bring justice where you cannot. Jesus can bring love and grace and salvation and hope and life where you and I on our own cannot. And we get to be a part of it, to receive it and to share it. So stop calculating. Stop quitting. Stop thinking about what can I do and start asking what can Jesus do in me, in my family, in my church, in my city, in my world. Lord Jesus, what will you do? And I want to be a part of it. I want to be along for the ride in every possible way. Last little bit of this story. Two verses, verses 14 and 15. How do people respond? When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus walked away. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Six and finally, don't follow the crowd follow Jesus. Don't follow the crowd. The crowd saw a sign, and they limited it to a sign, but they didn't see their true need for Jesus. They clearly did not understand that Jesus is God. They didn't understand that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they call him an honorable title, but an incomplete title, prophet. They were willing to follow Jesus. Get this. They were willing to follow Jesus only as long as he gave them what they wanted. How many who will wear the mask of Christianity or of church will find themselves in that place? They were willing to follow Jesus only as long as he gave them what they wanted. The desire of the crowd was to use Jesus far more than it was to be used by Jesus. 
Their hands were open to receive, but their hands were not open like that little boy who said, everything that I have is yours. I trust you. I want you as my Lord. I want you as my Savior, not as my vending machine. And then you see what happens next. Jesus was not interested in being their political, their earthly king. Why? This seems an appropriate moment, right? Because that seat is too small. Jesus is not interested in such a tiny throne. Jesus is not your president. He's not running for president. He's our Lord. He's our creator. He's our king of all kings. He's our savior. Now and forevermore, that seat as king was too small, and so he walked away from it. I would encourage you as you think about our own country, our world, even our city, Jesus did not come to be our president. He came to be our Lord and Savior. And solutions in this life come when we as people, as families, as a church, and as a nation look to Jesus as Lord. Look to him as the one true hope. Do not follow the crowd. Follow Jesus. The disciples failed their test. In this moment, they failed the test, right? But Jesus was still at work in them, wasn't he? He was still at work. And we know that because these 12 disciples and hundreds more that we join with even today, they came to learn by God's grace how to appropriate the power of God in their lives rather than looking to themselves. They believed that Jesus was their Savior. They believed that Jesus was their Lord and their eternal King. And every single one of those disciples spent the rest of their lives boldly sharing the good news of the gospel, trusting in Him for salvation, looking to His power and His grace, not their own. And every single one would not be silenced with the good news of that message because they had seen the power of Jesus at work. And guys, we can do the same. If you have failed as a follower of Jesus, welcome to the club. Me, I win. You are forgiven. The same Jesus who comes in power is the Jesus who comes in grace. It is not about your ability. It is about his. It is not about your perfection. It is not about you following the rules. It is about his grace. Ask God, if you are a believer this morning, ask God to keep working in you by His power, that He would enable you more and more by His Holy Spirit to follow hard after Jesus. Brothers and sisters, stop bean counting and follow Jesus. And if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, understand that is the entire message of this story, is you cannot do it yourself. You cannot be good enough, and Jesus doesn't expect you to be. He knew the disciples would fail. He knows your sins already. He knows my sins already. And he came to this world to do for you what you could never do yourself. Save you. Forgive you. Make you new. Fill you with his Holy Spirit. The very beginning of the story, don't miss a final little nugget. It says that at Passover that this story took place. Well, Passover was an incredibly important moment that happened every year where the Jews would gather and would celebrate the fact that in the Old Testament, God had saved them from something they could not save themselves from. And they celebrated with 
bread. And Jesus finishes John chapter 6 by connecting all of these dots for us. Look at the end of John chapter 6. This is verses 32 through 35. Speaking to them, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It's not just about Passover, he's saying. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, a saving bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, me. Jesus is talking about himself. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So if you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, do you recognize that you need Him? Are you experiencing the reality that you are spiritually hungry and thirsty? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I have died to take away away your sins. I have risen from the dead to give you new life. And all you have to do is ask. And so I ask you this morning, are you hungry? Turn to Jesus and ask him to be your Savior, your Lord, the bread of life. Let's pray together.